Hippo Piazzo. That is our word for today. Hippopiazo. It's Greek, it's in the Bible, <laughs> and it means to give a black eye. To give a black eye as in punching someone in the face, give a black eye. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I find it quite amusing that there is a specific term in Greek for that, for giving someone a black eye. Hippopiazo. And what is perhaps even more amusing and definitely perplexing is that the gospel writer Luke chooses that precise term when recording a parable in which Jesus talks about, well, about prayer. About prayer of all things. Giving a black eye prayer. Go figure, right? Yet finding out about this hippopiazo thing, giving a black eye, has meant that for a second time in about two years, this parable that I find mostly uncomfortable has, well, in a way, hit me in the face in regard to my discomfort, not only with the parable, but with prayer itself. I want to read it with you. And St. Luke shares it with us in the chapter 18 of his telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So chapter 18 of the gospel according to St. Luke, and I'll read from verses 1 to 8, where it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in, a, in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And this is where the Greek actually says, that she won't eventually come and give me a black eye. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on earth. So first of all, let me talk about, about the discomfort. And I know that some people get thrown off by a pastor saying that he's uncomfortable with prayer, though I would dare guess that it's way more common than you would think. Now prayer is and can be a lot of different things. And they, 
So I want to tell you what it is that can make me uneasy about prayer, especially in the context of what we are talking about today, because it's not necessarily about everything that prayer is or can be. But in the context of what we're talking about today, I do have an unease, and it has to do with three, three things, three interlinked things, and they all share the common thread of complexity, and particularly of the fact that I have, I personally have a hard time ignoring or managing to not take into account the complexity of things. So the first thing is the issue of injustice. Justice, injustice. And with that, you can already see that I will have to wildly oversimplify these issues because they are, well, complex. But the question is, how do I pray, and especially how do I bring prayers of petition, that is prayers of asking for something, how do I pray in a world that is so wildly unjust, and in which injustices are so hopelessly interconnected? Now, one expression of this is the question, why me? Why should my prayer requests be granted while millions cry and pray every day and go unanswered? And why should I, from a relatively privileged life, be asking for anything for myself? Or why should I think that I know better so that I can pray for those who are arguably less privileged than me? You get the feeling? Of course, again, oversimplifying, I know. But you get the sense, the unease. The other expression of this is realizing that as soon as I pray for one issue, I'm overlooking another. Or sometimes I'm even running the risk of corroborating another by praying for the one. Which brings me to the other thing, which is the issue of, of language of how we say things, of how we word them, and how the way we word them does something to how we think about them. This is a, a complex thing, right? The way we talk about things shapes how we think about them, and then how we talk about them again, and it's a circle. And I keep on stumbling over my own words and finding that they are all inadequate. Inadequate to address the complexity of the world that I am trying to engage with in prayer, be that my inner world or the world out there. Every word seems like a gross oversimplification or even distortion of the things that I want to bring in prayer. So the issue of injustice, the issue of language, and finally, there is the issue of time. Quite bluntly, Christians have been praying for justice and peace for millennia, and the world is still an evil mess. 
So I find the language of urgency triggering. I find it difficult to deal with. Not because I don't think the need is urgent, but because it feels naive and almost a bit arrogant that my urgency should be the one to change this game. Now, as I said, prayer is and can be a lot of different things. And it is much more than petition. It is much more than asking for things, right? Yeah. I have found great comfort in prayers of silence lately, for instance. But I am bringing up these issues because the parable touches them for me. It nudges at them, right? I feel uncomfortable with how the issue of justice is played out. Justice is granted by a corrupt judge because he wants to be left alone? I mean, what kind of a model of seeking for justice is this? And I feel uncomfortable with the language of urgency in it. What does Jesus mean by saying that God will grant justice to his chosen ones quickly? And also only to his chosen ones. What does that mean? What is that all about? And finally, I get annoyed by this proposed methodology of prayer here. Is, is annoying repetition really the methodology of prayer that we need to change the world? Is that how we get God to do something? It seems a bit simplistic, and after a couple of millennia, it doesn't really seem that effective after all. then again, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I got this wrong. And this is where the hippopiazo, give him a black eye thing, comes in. And it might have less to do with repetition and more to do with insistence. And those are not quite the same thing, are they? But before I get to that, I need to let Luke guide us a bit more. Because this parable is being told <laughs> in a context. And the gospel writers are guiding us as they, as they tell the story. As they tell the story. And Luke goes straight from this into another parable. Which is also a parable about prayer. And I want to read it with you. It goes on. We read up to verse 8, and now I read from verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Now, this parable, told like this in tandem with the other one, right after it, it, it has a double effect on this whole uneasiness with prayer of mine. First, it crushes the methodology argument. If, if we left the other parable thinking that the takeout should be some lesson on the right way to pray, in the sense of the right method, the right way to go around it, then this parable puts that notion to rest. Because the Pharisees were the masters of method. The Pharisees knew the rules, and they were experts in how to follow them methodically. The Pharisees were the masters of performance of the religious life. They specialized in it. If someone was expected to know how to pray properly in first century Judaism, it was the Pharisees. They knew how to do this. And this other dude, the, the other, the tax collector, in the eyes of first century Judaism, he had no method and he had no dignity. He had no business being in the temple to begin with. He was a betrayer of the Jewish people. A sinner. Whose very profession was connected to a notion of greed, of exploitation, of treason. At least that's what it looks like to the eyes of the Pharisee in the parable. But then Jesus says that it is his blundering prayer that is heard. And what is more, Luke tells us that this parable was told to those who were confident on their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. So to me, this parable challenges if there might be arrogance, or fear hidden in my uneasiness or my overzealousness for addressing the full complexity of existence. Right after this, the second parable, Luke tells us of how Jesus calls in the little children. And the little children here, the term is the very little ones. It's the ones you have to carry. And he calls them to him And he says, the kingdom of God belongs to them. What do children know about the complexity of the world? Maybe there's more things hidden under that. But I said a parable has a double effect. This was one. The other is an invitation. And it's an invitation back into prayer. And the invitation comes by realizing what this bent over, chest beating tax collector, what he has in common with that insistent widow. And what these two have in common is that they dare to wrestle 
and they dare to get in touch with injustice and brokenness. See, the widow is almost a stereotype, and Luke talks about widows all the time. Because widows were extremely vulnerable in the society of the time. They had no kind of social security. And if you have a widow that is claiming on her own behalf before a judge, it is because she has no one. She is undercast. She has no power or rights of her own. And yet she dares to name injustice and to name it repeatedly. This tax collector recognizes the injustice and the brokenness in his own soul. And rather than hide it away, he dares to touch it. They dare to wrestle and they dare to get in touch with injustice and with brokenness. Rather than running away or hiding from the deep realities of inner and outer injustice and brokenness, they dare to go toward it and hit it in the face. There is injustice and brokenness in me. Forgive me, says the tax collector. There is injustice in the world, and this corrupt judge needs to be shown it, says the widow. And as she goes through life in an unjust system that oppresses her, she dodges and she ducks and she keeps on trying to get in until she can hit him in the eye. Hippopiazo. And that's what this image suddenly changed and brought to me. Because this term is actually a term brought in from the world of boxing or of fighting, even in a context, in the Greek context. It's from the, the world of a, of a, a fight. And in a fight, you don't give the other person a black eye by just standing there and repeating the same movement. <laughs> That's not what it's about. It's about trying to find your way in, knowing what is your target, what you want to hit, and not quitting. And sometimes you have to dodge, sometimes you have to run, sometimes you have to go to the side, sometimes you have to take a few punches, but you stick to it because you need to hit it in the eye. It's not about a standing repetition it's about an engagement with the world because we refuse to let injustice and brokenness go unaddressed, whether it's out there or it's within ourselves. This widow is suddenly trying to find an opening in an unjust reality to give it a black eye. And I just love that image. It's almost funny if it wasn't tragic. Against this well-established judge with power, you have this weak widow, but she won't quit. In the temple, 
the place of religious performance, you'll have this unwelcome, unwelcome tax collector. But he won't quit. He dares to touch injustice and brokenness in himself as she dares to touch and name injustice and brokenness in the world. And when we realize this, we see and we read the parable and we realize that God is not being identified with this unjust judge. God is being identified with the cry for justice, with the passion for justice, this holy insistence for justice and for wholeness, and this insistence on daring to get in touch with the deeper realities of inner and outer injustice and brokenness. And then even this time issue suddenly is a bit different. Because Jesus does something very interesting that he goes through this and he talks about who cry out to him day and night. I tell you, he will see that they get justice in quickly. And then he goes straight into saying, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that is the language, is what we call scatological language. That is language of the end of times. That is language of, that, that throws to full redemption, right? to the end of times and whatever will come when God brings about justice for the whole world. So the timeline here is all messed up. And when that happens in the Gospels, especially, yeah, when that happens in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, it's good to pay attention to what's happening with Jesus, right? When eternity touches time, when suddenly this whole thing of, of what comes after what matters a bit less because the eternal God is present. And when the eternal God is present, he is touching injustice and brokenness with his very presence. And suddenly this widow, she's the hero. She's the place where this is happening. Where the will of God that we pray and hope to be fulfilled in the end is blossoming in the middle of a desert and taking shape. Because she will not quit. She recognizes injustice and she dodges and she ducks and she dances with it because it's complex, but she wants to hit it in the eye with prayer. I still don't know what to do with the complexity of injustice in the world. I don't. I honestly don't think I'll ever manage to shake off that feeling that it's, it's just too complex. The target moves too quickly. I don't think I'll ever, as long as I'm alive in this way, get rid of that feeling of why, why not now? Why wait? There's so much pain, right? This issue of the time. But maybe I shouldn't. 
If that uneasiness is the uneasiness of realizing that there is injustice and brokenness in the world. I don't want to sit still and think it's okay. I don't want to become comfortable. But this widow and this tax collector invite me to rather than just step out of it all and say, okay, that's it. I'm going to step out of the ring because I can't do this. They invite me to fight the giant. They invite me to dance and twirl and dodge and fall and get up again. But to stick to it. Because brokenness, because injustice need to be touched if they're going to be healed. Need to be named if they're going to be transformed. Need to be brought out into the open in our own selves and in society. If there's going to be a change. I hope and I pray that I'll have this widow's stamina. That I'll, that I won't quit. And that I'll never lose that desire to hit brokenness, to hit injustice in the eye. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the reality of your lives, into the darkest of days and the brightest of nights. May you bring you his peace. Go in peace and serve the Lord and serve the world and serve each other joyfully. Amen.